Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Their newly released book, MIPS Manual 2020, is available on Amazon now. This book is great for practice administrators and clinicians who need to keep up with the changing healthcare laws. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're talking with Andrea Wilson-Woods, who is an author and patient advocate who founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association, to honor her sister. We really enjoyed our conversation and know that you will too. So let's jump right in. When I was 22 years old, I got custody of my eight-year-old sister. We have different fathers. Her father actually died in a car accident before she was born. We have the same mother and our mother was not able to take care of her. In fact, I actually sued my mother for custody and won. And so I raised my sister all through my 20s until she was diagnosed with stage four liver cancer a month after her 15th birthday. And it was absolutely devastating. It happened extremely fast. The day before she had been fine, active, you know, doing well, about to finish first year of high school. And then the next day we're in an ER and the ER doctor says she has tumors in her liver and lungs. We're not equipped to handle this situation. We've arranged for a transfer to Children's Hospital. Boom. That was day one of what was only a 147-day cancer journey. That's how short it was. I lost my sister. I lost my child. And I lost my best friend. We were getting to that point where I was like, oh, good. She's growing up. We can be friends one day. And it was really tough. About a year after she died, I just needed a way to channel my grief. So I called what I think is still the largest liver disease foundation in the U.S. And I said, hey, I noticed that there's nothing about liver cancer on your website. I would like to volunteer for you. And they were like, oh, no, 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 we don't do liver cancer. Now, this was back in 2002. And I said, oh, well, I know, I know, but I'm happy. I'll, I'll do it for you. My background is writing and marketing. I'm, I'll create a whole program for you. And I was all gung-ho. No, we do not do liver cancer. 
end of conversation. And I talked to the very top person who was in charge of the Los Angeles chapter. And I've had it confirmed since that at that time, they did not want to deal with liver cancer. No one did. And I did a bunch of research and there wasn't a single nonprofit in the country focusing on primary liver cancer even though it's one of the most deadliest cancers and it has been on the rise in the U.S. ever since. And it's one of the most common cancers in the world, one of the deadliest, and yet one of the most preventable. So that's how I started my nonprofit. We turned 19, 19, no, 17. I can't do math today. (laughs) 17 (laughs) in December. And for about 10 years, we operated under the radar. We had helped patients, caregivers. We had our medical advisory board. So People in the know knew who we were, but we really didn't have a national presence until liver cancer just hit this sort of breaking point in this country. And all of a sudden people were like, oh, whoa, this is a problem. We have to do something about it. And pharmaceutical industry started paying attention. More doctors and more specialties started paying attention because it's a very complex disease. And it's really been in the last five or six years that we've grown tremendously. And I've spoken in many places now and we attend two major conferences every year and other conferences and it's been incredible. I mean, I hate to say that because it's more prevalent now, we have a bigger voice, but at least more patients find us now and we're able to help them. A couple of things come up for me and I'm thinking, did anybody ever tell you why they weren't paying attention to this disease or cancer back when you had first started? Like, did they have a reason, a reason for saying, yeah, we're just not interested in paying attention to this? And then following up from that, other than frequency, what else has changed? Uh, Those are very good questions. If you take the mercenary point of view, in the U.S., when my sister was diagnosed, there were only about 14,000 cases. There wasn't money to be made. I'm not saying the doctors didn't care. They did, but there was not money to be made. And that's why I think people weren't paying attention, even though it is so prevalent in Asia and Africa. And the reason it's become worse in this country is because the main causes of primary liver cancer are due to hepatitis B or hepatitis C. And in the U.S., it's hepatitis C. In Africa and Asia, it's actually hepatitis B. And both are viruses. And hepatitis B, you can get through bodily fluid. Hepatitis C, you get through blood, typically. And in fact, they were so stunned by my sister, this otherwise healthy 15-year-old Caucasian female who had never been outside the U.S., they tested her for hepatitis B and hepatitis C, and she had both. And due to her age, the year she was born, our mother's drug history, they determined that she got it from our mother during childbirth. Because when my sister was born, hepatitis C had not even been identified or taken out of the blood supply, and hepatitis B was not necessarily tested It was not standard of care for prenatal mothers. And I actually confirmed that for the book. I tracked down my mother's OBGYN from 1986 and I asked him point blank and he said, no, it wasn't standard of care. Now in the US, if any woman walks in and gets any kind of prenatal testing, they will automatically just test her for hepatitis B and C. They won't even tell her necessarily. In this country, it's the baby boomer population born between 1945 and 1965 who are at risk for hep C. And in fact, the CDC recommended every baby boomer get a one-time hep C test. It's not a difficult test to, to get necessarily, but you have to ask for it. And slowly with the curative hep C drugs that are on the market, 
that is changing, which is great to see. All these curative hep C drugs have been on the market in the last couple of years. And so hep C is getting cured. But I can think of a patient right now. I'm actually meeting his wife tomorrow in San Francisco. He was cured of his hep C and it was too late because his liver had already developed into hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the technical term for primary liver cancer. So it was too late. The tricky thing about hep C and liver cancer as well is they're called the silent killer because our liver doesn't really have any pain receptors. And if you don't feel pain, well, then how, how do you know? So that makes a lot of sense. Can you take us back to that day in the emergency room and tell us more about what was going on in your lives for you and your sister. You describe her as a typical 15-year-old. You know, I'm sure she was hanging with friends, going to school. What were the dynamics of her life prior to that day? Just, I guess, kind of your day-to-day. And what about you? Were you working? Did you have health insurance? You know, what was your immediate response to this news of her to be transferred over to children? Well, she had had a very difficult time in middle school and she'd been severely depressed and even suicidal. So she had been seeing a therapist for several years. And so she had sort of gotten over that hump. Like by the time she got to high school, something just changed and she embraced who she was. It was a beautiful thing as a parent to see. And I'm sure you understand if you have children, anyone listening, to see her just embrace who she was, stop caring what other people thought and just own it, you know, just own herself. It was wonderful. So she was really blossoming in high school. She was a, an honor student, 4.0 GPA. She had a boyfriend, you know, and she was just doing so well. And I was actually an actress in my 20s, but I was also a teacher to be on her schedule. And so I sort of juggled the two. And the year before she got sick, I had acted in three plays. I had directed another three plays. I was always doing something. And actually, I was always dragging her along to help me. (laughs) She was a writer. She was a visual artist. She had her artwork displayed in three different galleries in Los Angeles. She was a budding musician. She played jazz bass. She was very excited about it. She was just a real amazing, creative, wicked smart kid. And like I said, things seemed to be kind of calming down. And that day before she had been fine, the only sign that she had that we were able to link back were actually two signs. One, she was getting a lot of acid reflux. I mean, she was chewing Tums like they were candy. And of course, I could control what she ate at home, but I couldn't control what she ate at school. And I was like, well, stop eating tacos at school, right? Just stop. But we weren't too worried about it. She had a physical coming up. We're like, okay, we'll check it out, the physical. And the other thing she had exactly two weeks to the day, two weeks before, was right shoulder pain. And we went to see her pediatrician, and he thought she had pulled her shoulder during dance class, gave her some ibuprofen, sent her home. And we didn't think anything else of it. And so I come home from teaching, May 16th, 2001. I will never forget it. And she was already home from school. She went to school from 7 to seven to two. I actually taught from eight to three. And she was curled up in a fetal position on the living room floor crying. This was a kid who never cried. And she kept saying, I can't breathe, sissy. That's what she called me. I can't breathe. And she was clutching her right side. So we go straight to her pediatrician. He thinks we're there for the shoulder. And she's like, oh, no, 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 that's fine. But this, I can't breathe. And tears, you know, she's still crying. And he looks at her stomach 
and says, well, how long has this been going on? And, and it was very bloated. And I was a very fortunate parent because she was very modest. And so she didn't show me her stomach. And she says, well, two days or so. And he didn't like what he saw. He sent us to the ER to get a CAT scan. Go to the ER. And the, of course, they ask a lot of questions. Well, they thought she had internal bleeding because a few weeks before she had been at Coachella, an outdoor music festival, which I'm sure everyone is aware of unless you've been living under a rock. And she had saw her favorite musician, Dave Navarro of Jane's Addiction, perform. And that's what they were looking for was internal bleeding. So uh, they gave her something for the pain finally. And to give you an idea of her sense of humor and sort of our rapport with each other, they go to wheel her in for the CAT scan and she says, hey, Sissy, watch it be cancer. And I'm like, oh, bite your tongue. And we just start laughing, right? <laughs> you know. So she goes in, gets a CAT scan, comes out, we're waiting. We have to call her therapist. It's a Wednesday night. She always saw her Wednesdays at seven, call her therapist, tell her what's going on. And she says, okay, well, call me back. And I'm, we're like, oh yeah, 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 we'll call you back. And that's when that ER doctor comes in. And I knew it was bad because he would not look at her. He wouldn't look at her. And that's when he said she has tumors in her liver and lungs. And I feel like whether you're a cancer patient or caregiver, it's a very before and after moment. I feel like life is mostly in the gray, but before and after cancer is a black and white moment that you never forget. That was it right there. Everything else in life is before cancer or after cancer for me. And we were sent to Children's Hospital Los Angeles because that local hospital in Burbank, California did not treat pediatric patients. And two days later, she had a biopsy and that's when they confirmed it was primary liver cancer. I have to tell you, I'm in the middle of doing some writing, kind of a, an augmented journal work regarding my son, his rare disease. And there is a line I have that I distinctly remember writing. And it's just, it's like cancer. It's a big curveball, right? When you're stricken with something. And I have a line that there's this period of time, both when our son was diagnosed and then when he passed, that like, you know, just like AD, right? Or, you know, current mm -hmm. time or BC, that it really should be this other point in time, that it should be, it's marked by something so distinctly of how things were before and how mm -hmm. things are after. So I can absolutely relate to that and you likening that time frame. So you find out it's cancer. What are the next many days like? Biopsy was on a Friday. They, over the weekend, nothing really happened. And then early the next week, they sit us down to have the talk, the talk with Dr. No, as we nicknamed him for no bedside manner. <laughs> and also anything we asked, can we do this, this or that? No. And so, <laughs> oh God, he was so awful. <laughs> we fired him. So that's when we find out what it is and what kind of chemo she's going to do. But I will share this because it was just so awful. He could not really tell us just how bad it was. He could not tell us that there were no drugs at that time that worked on stage four. None, none. He should have told us that we needed to see someone who dealt with this disease every day. He did not because it actually wasn't a pediatric cancer. He should have told us to go straight to a clinical trial, which would have been incredibly difficult given her age, but it could have been done. He didn't do any of those things. He told us, I kid you not, this would be a good time to go to Hawaii while she still feels good. That was his way of telling us 
how sick she really was. And if I hadn't been so upset, I probably would have punched him. It was terrible. It was really a horrible experience. And we actually did end up transferring her care to UCLA to a doctor who saw 300 cases a year, so one almost every single day of her type of cancer. And in a really strange turn of events, I tried to track him down when I started my nonprofit and he just sort of fell off the radar and Google was not really good at being Google at that time, so I couldn't find him. I saw him for the first time since my sister died at ASCO last year, which is the largest medical conference in the US. Actually, sorry, this year, just months ago. He remembered my sister because he really didn't have any pediatric patients. And I almost burst into tears when I saw him. And he said, oh, she was such an angel. And of course, the name of the organization is Blue Fairy. So one question I didn't answer, my apologies. I did not have health insurance for myself, but thanks to a loophole in the California law at the time, I did have health insurance for my sister. And she was covered. And then we were able to get her in another program because of the diagnosis. So anytime I got a bill, I just sent it to one insurance or this other program. I just refused to pay it. And I just was the squeaky wheel and I just sent it. It was like, uh-uh, no, one of you is going to pay it. Um, so I was very fortunate in that respect that all of the bills got paid eventually by some other company, but not by me personally. So these days is what Blue Fairy and your other organization, are you helping other patients navigate the system? Is that yes, kind of so your main goal? Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, and advocacy. And we focused on education first because when Adrian was diagnosed, with liver cancer, I was given all these one sheets about her chemo and nothing about her cancer. And I asked for it. And at that time, nothing existed. And the surgeon who did her biopsy, bless him, went and made copies from his medical textbooks. And I had these sheets of paper and I felt like an idiot because I didn't understand any of it. So I bought a medical dictionary and Gray's Anatomy and sat down and was translating every single word. So I think it's stuck in the back of my head that this is a problem. You know, patient education has to be in layman's terms. It cannot be higher than a seventh grade level because that's the average reading level for an American. And so our patient education brochures are free to patients, caregivers, and providers. And providers love it because we don't even charge for shipping and we ship all over the world and it's an electronic form. They just fill it out online. Brochures go out as long as we have them. They're translated into Spanish and Chinese because those populations are disproportionately affected by liver cancer. And then we have a lot of advocacy. We partner with other organizations. And then we also have an annual research award that we give out every year on my sister's birthday. And that award period opens up November 1st, closes January 31st, and it's given out on April 8th. Cancer U is a little bit different. Cancer U is for all cancer patients and caregivers. We completed our beta test late fall. We are now about to start a pilot. And as I mentioned before, it's an online membership platform. Our actual customers are hospitals, insurance companies, and pharmaceutical companies, but our end users are patients and caregivers. And I do have something for your listeners. Would you like me to tell you now? We've never sure, had let's hear it. for our listeners. So yes, 
please. Okay. So my co-founder and I were talking about it, and we would like to offer your listeners, those people who are either diagnosed with cancer or caregivers of cancer patients, free lifetime membership to Cancer U. So all they have to do is go to cancer.university, no.com, just cancer.university. Look for the apply here, apply now button. It will actually forward you to the membership site. Look for the big green apply now buttons, fill out the form and where it says, how do you want to pay? It's a little drop down menu and say, I have a coupon code. And the coupon code is very simple. It's hit like a girl, all caps and your fee will be totally waived. Thank you. That is super generous. Absolutely. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt, but we wanted to let you know about a way you can support Hit Like a Girl podcast directly. We've partnered with patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, as a way for us to connect with our listeners and fans in a direct way and ask them to support us so we can continue creating more great content like this episode you're listening to. Patreon.com is not so much of a one-time contribution, but more like a subscription to provide support to independent creators like us. Patrons who pledge even just $2 a month give us the stability we need to continue producing podcast episodes. In return for your patronage, we're offering virtual high fives, personalized thank you notes, and even shout outs on our episodes. When you become a patron of Hit Like a Girl podcast, you're supporting our channel directly, so we won't be making podcast episodes for some viral audience or for ads. We're making them for you, our listeners. This allows us to focus on topics related to women, healthcare, and technology. With your support on Patreon.com, we're able to spend that time having meaningful conversations and doing more great work that can positively impact the lives of other women in healthcare and tech. So join us on Patreon.com, and let's make something amazing together. I got to say, I think anyone listening that, you know, cancer is just so pervasive. I got to imagine that everyone either knows someone, has a loved one, a friend, or knows someone that knows someone, that there are so many people out there that are going to benefit from this. So if the pilot is all the things you dream it to be, you tweak what needs to be tweaked. What does cancer you look like like three or five years from now? My big audacious goal, along with all these other programs that I won't go into, but just generally speaking, is when a cancer patient or caregiver hears that C word, that moment, the next words out of the doctor's mouth will be, but our hospital has a partnership with Cancer U. Let's get you enrolled today. Or, you know what? Cancer U has scholarships for your particular type of cancer. Let's get you enrolled today. Or, you know what? Your health insurance covers a membership to Cancer U. Let's get you enrolled today. So they immediately have access to a community because we have an, an online forum that's private, HIPAA compliant. It's not a Facebook group. You should not be discussing your health on Facebook, in my personal opinion. But you have access to a community. You have access to content that has been curated and appropriate. But it's also not in medical terms. It's, it's down in layman's terms. You can also go through that content the way you want. You know, if you like video, there's video. If you like audio, there's audio. If you're a worksheet person like me, there are worksheets. Right now, everything's still in English. One of the things we're working on with our new tech partner is to get everything in Spanish and to make that transition really easy for people. 
I want it to be ubiquitous. I want Cancer U to be everywhere. This is going to sound a little crazy, but when I was a kid, my co-founder thinks this is crazy, but when I was a kid, I didn't know Jell-O was a brand. And so I had no idea. That's what I want Cancer U to be for the cancer community. And 39% of Americans are going to experience cancer in their lifetime. 39%. That's nuts. And I don't want them to feel like there's nothing out there for them or they don't know where to go. I want it to be incredibly easy. And especially after hearing what is probably the worst news of, you know, of your life, perhaps having something to not necessarily have to think about it and go do the Google searching yourself and having the mental energy to track down that information is its own burden. So being able to connect those dots and hand resources to somebody who's really like at the most needing it the most that they ever possibly could, that's a beautiful uh, position to be in. And it's a a great offering and value that you're bringing to the table. I think a To your point, great example is we have a medical advisory board, but we also have a patient and caregiver advocate board. And one of our new major courses, so that's particular to the cancer, is Liver Cancer 300. And one of the advisors on that course is a um, current liver cancer caregiver. And she said, the information in this course, and now this is our basically our basic liver cancer course, it's not an advanced course, the information in this course took her two months and over five resources to find. Now, it's not the five resources so much, but it's the two months. It took her two months to find all the information that is in about a three and a half, four hour course that's broken down into very small digestible chunks. And she just marvels at that. Wow, what a difference that would have made if I could have gotten this information immediately as soon as her husband was diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. Time is of the essence. Every ticking minute counts. And so being able to save those folks, you know, seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, my goodness, that's life-changing. One of the things I kept looking for when my sister was diagnosed were survivors. And I actually had someone who volunteered to do research for me. So she was doing all this research, but I was too. And But I I was like, it's statistically impossible not to have survived. I mean, there has to be at least one person on this planet. And I was looking every day and it took me three months. I mean, I remember, and it's it's in the book, it took me three months to find survivors of stage four primary liver cancer. And I found them in Japan and from this uh, study, but it took three months (laughs) and it should not have taken three months for me to find these people and what drugs they were on which turned out to be very common. It shouldn't have taken that long. You know, the time savings and the curation of information for someone, I think, is one of the biggest things you've hit on. I saw on your website, you talk about how people get this information and it becomes very reactive. And I specifically remember thinking, I'm in healthcare. I have so many friends in medicine. I got this. (laughs) But for a totally different diagnosis, I went through all of those exercises, all of that headache, looking for people that got back to a baseline, right? People that did well or responded well to certain things. And it was painstakingly timeful. And obviously after the loss of our son, the the thing I wish I had more back of is time. And I think when you're faced with something, especially a stage four diagnosis, that is, I mean, time on the daily is just finite, right? 
And so I think what you're talking about, that it's ubiquitous, that it comes out of the doctor's mouth, second nature. There is no reason that if someone has cancer, has a loved one, has a friend, has a family member, should not have the level of access. So I applaud you for bringing it all to a central point and really a platform and a repository where people can have access to those resources. Because when I go to the doctor or I go to the hospital and all they keep doing is handing me printouts, a, I don't know what to do beyond that. And B, right. it's infuriating. Oh, here, you're going here, you're gonna want this. Here, it's all written down. Or going back and translating the medical terminology through Gray's Anatomy, through my own brain and what I knew and asking questions. It was horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. And I think what you have done is so beautifully unique. There is no reason that your mission should not be fulfilled. It should be second nature, like you said. And I just think it is so remarkable that you've been able to bring that to patients and caregivers. Thank you, Robin, so much. I, I really appreciate that. It's um, I vetted this idea for quite some time because I knew how noisy the cancer space was when it hit me, when it just came to me like a lightning bolt. Mind you, I've been meditating and praying for months and months <laughs> trying to figure this out. And I was like, man, it's like you got to go back to school because you get hit with all these acronyms. You got to make intelligent, rational decisions very quickly and you got to go back to school. And what I did was I actually entered the Estellas C3 prize. It's called Changing Cancer Care. It's an annual international entrepreneurial competition. And I entered it on the concept of Cancer You Alone. I had nothing but the concept. I threw up a webpage and out of 160 entries from 21 countries, I got in the top 10. And so I made the semifinals. I interviewed with the Estella's executives. I knew I wouldn't make the top five because I just had the concept, but they loved it. They got it. They understood it. And from that point on, I spent six months vetting the idea, speaking to patients and caregivers and survivors and doctors and people in the insurance industry, people in the pharmaceutical industry. And every single person came back with yes. And if they had not, I probably wouldn't have moved forward because it's such a, a huge thing to tackle. But every person came back with yes for the reasons that you just stated. And I also want to say I'm so sorry for your loss. I really am. Thank you. You know, it's, um, I always feel like it's, it's all relative. I hear about, you know, journeys like yours and, you know, the uniqueness of your story. And we have been fortuitous, really, to run into so many other families or friends that have dealt with so many different journeys. Like it, it becomes a very humbling place to be, but we've also found a community of people early on in our journey, like you were talking about. We've fortunately, it was a private group, but found a Facebook group for the rare disease that was going on because there wasn't a lot known. And it was a mom in Australia that sent me a message to help me cling to other people that had walked in these shoes before. And so being able to learn from them and know what was working and not working or whatever became, you know, invaluable. And now even after the loss, there's this kind of, it's inexplainable some days. It's not easy to articulate. And so I'm sorry that you lost both, you know, really a sister and a child. I can't imagine, I cannot imagine as I sit here thinking about what our older girls have dealt with and gone through and as a parent what I've gone through and how that's really compounded even in your situation I just can't imagine but I also am in awe at the action you've taken to just really make the world a better place 
Thank you very much. And uh, I have to say, it's funny, someone from Australia reached out to us uh, in the healthcare industry and was mad that we were not in Australia yet. Mad. And we had not even finished our beta. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> Give us time. Okay, we have to be successful here first. <laughs> Well, I'm glad the demand will continue to speak for itself. It's a, it, it will be a good problem to have. Exactly. We have our next question to go to, but kind of before that, on a personal note, and just tell me to, to go fly a kite if I'm totally off base. But I was thinking, just because of both of your stories in particular, can you speak to, Andrea, like how grief has changed over the years because it has been 15 years if I am correct like since your sister has passed has it gotten any better it's been 17 years the anniversary which is not a good word for what it is was um a week ago does not get better I think that's such a lie it doesn't get better it's different it's not better a friend of mine said it really well once it's sort of like having your arm cut off and you just get used to it. Well, what it really is, you just get used to it. One of the most difficult things for me was leaving Los Angeles, which I did almost five years ago, because I felt like if I left LA, I was leaving my sister because that's where I raised her. And she's buried in LA. And it was so tough. But then I realized she's with me every single day, everywhere, all the time she's with me. And I go back every year on or near Halloween because that was her favorite holiday. And I always go to the cemetery first when I land. I go usually straight to the cemetery, but it was hard. It was difficult. It turned out to be the best thing I could have possibly done for myself personally because I just needed to get out of LA. I'm not from California. I moved back to the Southeast, which is where all of my family lives. And I'm actually in Birmingham, which is where my sister was born. But I felt like I was leaving her. And it, it took me a long time to get to that point because, you know, I know if Adrian were still alive, I'd still be in Los Angeles. But grief is, it's different for everyone. That's the other thing. I, I you know, it's, it's just different. People handle it differently. Some people get angry. I was incredibly sad, so sad. I didn't get angry until last year, actually. I had a moment of anger last year. I was watching a stupid television show, really stupid, and <laughs> Their daughter walked across the stage in a high school graduation, and then they flash forward to college graduation. And Adrian had wanted to go to college since she was six years old. And during her cancer journey, I found out she wanted to go to my alma mater, USC. And of course, I had all of these dreams of her going to Stanford or Harvard or Princeton. And she wanted to go to USC because she'd been going to that campus since she was very young. And I saw this stupid TV show and I was livid. I got so mad for the first time ever because Adrian never got to graduate from high school. Adrian never got to go to college. And it shook me up. Like my own anger really surprised me and it overcame me. And I was just mad for a good five to 10 minutes. And that was 16 years later. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Our second question, I think you may have already sort of answered it just in because you are living your life through meaning you know something that is very meaningful and so I can tell already based on what you're doing with your life that you kind of are like I'm tackling the problem that I see out there but we do ask all of our guests that if they lately we've been asking if they could choose their magical weapon of choice 
So it would be a weapon of peace. It would be more like a magic wand, a snap of your fingers, a genie in a bottle, that sort of thing. Wait, you could a magical unicorn. There's magical unicorn. (laughs) (laughs) Never let me forget. Don't forget the unicorn. (laughs) Two episodes in a row. Um, well, I, if you I would could solve any problem. That's the idea. If you could solve any problem with magic and not take into consideration budget, time, resources, all of technology, any of it, all of those problems go away. If you could, you know, with your so, weapon of peace, exactly. Which, what problem would you solve and why? I would solve cancer. I would have all cancer of all types cured for anyone living anywhere and you know why (laughs) it's really clear why but if I could have a superpower which is kind of similar it would be to time travel and I would go back to the minute before my sister was born and I would just look at the obstetrician and say I know it sounds crazy but you need a tester for hepatitis B because if that had been done it might have saved her life because we would have been able to monitor her liver from the moment she was born. It really might have saved her life. That seems like a perfectly reasonable wish. And it's true you had said earlier that that's actually happening now, that that is something that is um, common practice. Yeah, that's, that, is, that is very standard of care to test mothers for hippie and hipsy. Wonderful. Can we digress for just a second? There are some, I'm sure you know better than anyone, all of the different facets of care through an episode of cancer. And so... I want to talk about one theme, and that's really two things I'm seeing this week. One, we have a friend in Virginia, a very close family member that knew us, her, you know, that knew our son, and the chemo drug they use is having a scarcity issue. And then on the hepatitis side, I think we would be remiss not to talk about the cost of treatment of some hepatitis and the barrier that it presents. And so can you just speak to that before we move on to our third question? Because in curing these problems, that's really the the magical utopic answer. But for the everyday folks that are out there, the people you deal with day in and day out or that are coming to your site, you know, especially when we talk about, you know, the kind of diagnosis like your sister had, when we talk about just chemo for cancer and the scarcity of drug and the cost of treatment, can you speak to those things a little bit in what you're saying? Sure. It's very important to become persistent and do not worry about what people think of you. I found out later that one of our favorite nurses told me that no one liked me at Children's Hospital and everyone loved my sister. And that is perfect because I was a pain in the butt. So for the chemo drugs and scarcity, that one's a little bit tougher, but you always wanna find out who is the manufacturer of the drugs. You want to know who the company is and go directly to the company because the last thing they want is bad PR. They get bad PR every single day. That's the last thing they want. So you want to go directly to the company and see what you start there. As far as the hepatitis C drugs, all of the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture drugs, especially hep C and and the the big um, one in hep C is Gilead. They all have what they call PAPs, P-A-P, Patient Assistant Programs. But they don't like to advertise it, ever. (laughs) But they have them. And many times it is not dependent on your income at all. You just have to apply for it. So again, you 
Google is pretty good now. So you go into Google, Gilead, Hepatitis C, Patient Assistant Program. You will probably find it. With Hepatitis C specifically, my nonprofit doesn't handle it, but I always refer people to an amazing nonprofit in Hep C. So they can feel free to email me at Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A, at Blueferry, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y, dot org or put it in the show notes or whatever, and I will hook them up with the hip C issue. Again, with scarcity with chemotherapy drugs, go straight to the manufacturer and make a big stink about it. I mean, really, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to make the companies accountable. Does that answer your question? Yes. Thank you for the great advice. I think that's very, very helpful to know. So, Andrea, this topics like the ones we were just talking about and a lot of your journey and the mention of it over a long course of time, there's so much that changes and goes on. You know, how do you keep up with all this? What do you read there professionally or personally, maybe even to disconnect that's had an impact on you? My favorite recent book to recommend to cancer patients and caregivers is Radical Remission. And I wrote it down <laughs> by Dr. Kelly Turner. It's based in research. And what she did was she wanted to find out why patients with devastating cancer diagnoses had these radical remissions. So she went around the world, looked at different types of cancer, different types of people, different stages of cancer, and identified nine things that all of these people did. And she puts it in layman's terms. It's an easy read. It's not like this difficult technical nonfiction book. And it's also very hopeful. And I really highly recommend it, Radical Remission. And then for me personally, I'm just a nonfiction junkie. And my latest book I'm reading is by Dr. Marty McCarry, and it's called Unaccountable. It's not his newest book. His newest book is The Price We Pay. He's a surgeon at Johns Hopkins, but I wanted to go back and read Unaccountable. And it's about how hospitals are not accountable for anything they do and the price issues, and also just about doctors and the problems of medicine. And his writing is very easy to consume. And of course, I, I go to conferences as well. The main two I go to right now are ASCO, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, which is in Chicago every year in June, and the American the liver meeting, the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease, and that one is coming up in November in Boston. Those are the big two, and then I go to lots of others as well. Thank you for all of that. I have got our growing list. I'm very <laughs> to share it with the world. We've got some really good books to share, but it has been such a, honestly, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you very much for taking the time. If people do want to follow you, work with you, Get to know Cancer You, the Blue Fairy. We're going to include all this information in show notes, but tell us where they can go. Sure. If they want to know more about Blue Fairy and liver cancer, just go to bluefairy.org, B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y.org. To learn more about Cancer University, go to cancer.university. And don't forget your coupon code, hit like a girl, all caps. And just to learn about me personally, or actually to learn about the book, go to betteroffbald.com. And you are on social media. Can people find you there? Yes. Yeah. All my social media links are on betteroffbald.com. And I'm Andrea Wilson Woods on social media, or if the name is too short, it's Andrea Will Woods on Instagram and Twitter. Excellent. Andrea, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah. Thank you. 
And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. You can find out more about them at www.chirpybirdinc.com.